Hello, I'm Alex Zane, film journalist, movie fan, and your host for a trip to the movies. I'm currently in our podcast studio a mile beneath the streets of London, and in a moment, my guest this week, the wonderful film journalist and podcaster Clarice Lockery, will be taking us on her perfect night out at the cinema. Thank you for downloading the podcast. This episode is brought to you by Odeon. And if you've been to watch a film at Odeon lately, you'll know that nothing beats that cinematic feeling. It's not just about stuffing your face with delicious popcorn, although let's be honest, that helps. It's your hair standing on end, your palms sweating, and being transported somewhere magical. It's feeling every footstep of some giant lumbering monster. It's car chasers, space battles, and your heart beating out of your chest. It's about feeling cinematic, and nobody does that better than Odium. Head to odium.co.uk or download their app to book your next adventure today. And if you'd like a pair of tickets to head to your nearest Odium, stick around after the interview and I'll tell you how you can get a pair. Also, if you'd like to watch today's interview in glorious Technicolor, do head over to our Trip to the Movies YouTube channel and please, while you're there, subscribe. Hit that subscribe button. Help us grow the pod into a giant temple of film. For all the latest updates and to get in touch, you'll find us at Trip to Movies Pod. That's at Trip to Movies Pod on all social media. Right then, time to introduce today's guest, who I interviewed just yesterday on Zoom. So let's do this. Hello and welcome to A Trip to the Movies, where each week a special guest takes us on their perfect night out at the cinema. This week, we're joined by a brilliant movie journalist and podcaster. She's the chief film critic for The Independent, the TV critic for Flix.co.uk, and one-third of the wonderful hosting team on the excellent film podcast, Fade to Black. Here to tell us all about that and take us on her perfect night out at the movies, it's the excellent Clarice Lockery. Clarice, hello. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Yeah. I am excited. I'm a little bit nervous because I love the idea. I love this podcast and I love the idea of it, but they're such big questions. And I feel like this is the stuff that will be like engraved on my gravestone. Mm. So I'm there's trepidation <laughs> if I say the wrong thing. And then people will be remem- remember me for having the worst cinema evening and everyone had a miserable time. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> we're a warm cocoon of cinema love. But yes, your answers are basically etched in marble and will be revisited for eons to come. No pressure. <laughs> uh, so it, look, it's 11.30 just after on a Wednesday morning here in London. Have you got a busy day ahead of you? No, not really. Um, it's, it's kind of a, a bit of a weird, well, this is the thing with, with cinema releases and this job is that there's always a bit of an ebb and flow. And sometimes you have a week where you just have to watch every single film mm. <laughs> in the span of 24 hours yep. and it's incredibly stressful. And then you have weeks where you're just kind of sitting around <laughs> waiting for something to happen. And I feel like this is one of those weeks, which is quite nice. Mm. Because I'm tired. <laughs> good, good. It, I think we're all tired. I think we're in recovery from the draining heat that was this country for the last seven days. But look, let's talk cinema because um, let me set a scene for you. We're in the twilight, the twilight of 2023. What's your take on this year in film? As a movie journalist, as the chief film critic for The Independent, as the host of the Fade to Black podcast, one of the three, tell me, 
Has it been a banner year for cinema? I think this has been the year of Barbenheimer, right? Mm. I I don't think we're going to be remembered for anything else. I say we, like I am a part of 2023. I don't think this year will be remembered for anything else other than Barbenheimer. And I, I don't know where it, it goes from here because that was a really exciting few weeks, month even, of just everyone in the world, in the country, very excited about filmmakers. That's the really cool thing about Barbenheimer to me is it wasn't just, oh, these everyone's going out to the cinema. It's everyone's going out to the cinema and they have the names Christopher Nolan and Greta Gerwig on their lips. And that to me, as a film critic and a person who loves the people who make movies, was like such, such a victory and such a, a beautiful moment. And I really hope that stuff happens this this sort of knock-on effects and we see more of a celebration of, of filmmakers which I think is especially relevant with everything going on in the industry right now so I I want to be hopeful and be like yay everything is gonna turn out good and okay in the future I, mean, I think you're absolutely right because as as film journalists we do tend to live in this bubble where you just sort of go oh so Greta Gerwig made this and assume that everyone is familiar with Greta Gerwig but obviously a lot of people who just visit the cinema you know casually I guess is the word don't know who that is and suddenly Nolan Gerwig like you say people are suddenly aware of these filmmakers this is why I'm very thankful for having my dad because he doesn't know anything about like he is not a cinephile so I feel like whenever I text him about movies or I call him about movies, he's the grounding force to remind me that actually <laughs> the stuff that I care about is, is really quite niche in the long run. Um, I, I think he might be vaguely aware of Christopher Nolan. Um, I'm trying to teach him Greta Gerwig. We're, we're getting there bit by bit. He did see Barbie and he enjoyed it a lot. So I think this is my project by the end of the year. He's going to learn what that name is. <laughs> He's going to be able to repeat, to repeat it back to me. It could take a couple of goes, but um, yeah, it's, it's sometimes quite helpful to, if you are like very in the world, and I don't just mean as a journalist, if you're just somebody with a letterboxed account, mm. go make a friend who just doesn't care about cinema at all. Mm. And it will sort of remind you where we are culturally. <laughs> Yeah. And it also makes you feel incredibly well read or well watched, I guess is a better word, because you can suddenly reel off quite basic facts and people go, oh, I had no idea about that. Oh, that's Steven Spielberg, director Jaws. Fascinating. Yeah. And it makes you feel like you have very cool taste, <laughs> which is always a concern as a film critic, is I just want to feel cool and cultured and for people to like me. So <laughs> that's helpful. Uh, do you think, I mean, I mean, granted, Barbie was based on a toy. And we've been discussing this a, a, a lot recently. Barbie was based on a toy, sure. Uh, Oppenheimer, obviously, a very original film. And Barbie is an original film based on a toy. Do you think the fact that these two movies have done so well has created possibly a change in Hollywood's view of making original cinema as opposed to pure franchises and adaptations? I want to say yes, with the knowledge that often Hollywood learns the worst lessons <laughs> and we're just going to have a bunch of Mattel toy movies and then a bunch of movies about World War II. My hope, if I could telepathically tell Hollywood something, 
is to say, look at these two movies, look at the creative freedom that these filmmakers had. I think the, the special thing about Barbie is that from everything I've read and my understanding of how it was made, Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach, like it was the lockdown. They just kind of hold themselves up in a room and they wrote the movie and Mattel wasn't really there to be over their shoulder say, don't do that, do this. I think once Mattel got involved, it was almost too late <laughs> to change. So they just had to sit with those decisions. Uh, so I hope like that's the lesson that they they take away that, okay, maybe we can just step back and let filmmakers actually complete their vision because I think when you're talking about a lot of blockbusters that have really great directors attached and then they don't turn out so well, you can tell that's often the problem that someone was just coming in going, oh, oh, don't, oh, don't do that. Actually, we need to have this because we want to make a toy out of it. So can you include this scene or this character, please? So, but I don't know. I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be optimistic. This is my thing for 2023 mm. is having hope. I love that. I love that. Uh, I uh, I did some research. Uh, obviously, like I said, you're the chief film critic for The Independent. I had a look at some of your reviews on the now infamous Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, we agree on a lot. I, I think largely because it's been a great year for film. Uh, you liked the new Dungeons & Dragons. I liked it too. You liked Guardians 3. I liked it too. I like Strays. You did not like Strays, the talking dog biting off its owner's dick movie. Well, because you... You said you have a dog, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, good research, yeah. So I, but this was my thing, because I, I don't have a dog now, but I had a dog growing up. And um, to me, it's not, <laughs> it's not a revelation that dogs are disgusting. Like, I love dogs. I'm such a dog person, but they are gross. Like, I won't say what my dog did, but I was there and I had to clean up afterwards. <laughs> so I think... For me, the the concept, like the actual concept behind strays of is wouldn't it be so wacky if we had dogs, but they did all this gross out stuff and they had sex and they mm. did stuff with poop. And it's like, I you're you're telling me things I already know, movie. <laughs> I, <laughs> I it didn't have the shock factor, I guess. And and you need to have that for those kinds of jokes to be funny. So I wrote that review with the knowledge that people were going to disagree with me because I think it's just a a comedic taste thing. But that is where I stand. I mean, I, look, I, I think box office wise, you're not wrong. It hasn't done that well, uh, unfortunately, I would say. Um, I actually read your review and agreed with it. I think the crudeness is the worst aspect of it, like a, a dog erection falling in shit. It's like, no, it I doesn't need that. I like the fact it felt like a throwback to the Todd Phillips early movies like Road Trip that you couldn't make with humans anymore but you can just about get away with with dogs. That is a good point. I am I think I wanted it to be better. I went in with quite high hopes because we have been lacking in great comedy because it's so hard to sell that stuff nowadays and to have it make money at the box office. I mean, the fact that Strays didn't do very well, I think is testament to that. But I had also seen Joyride, like a maybe a week or two before. Uh -huh. And that is a similar thing of a gross out road trip comedy, but that is actually really funny and really well-written. It, it has humans in it, <laughs> not animals. So I would say, I think the conceit still works, but you just have to take slightly different angles on it. And I think Joyride 
the characters are so well written and the relationships between them are so well written that you can kind of get around the fact we've done this many, many times before. Mm. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. Hey, um, I mentioned your podcast at the start, uh, Fade to Black. Um, and I also mentioned the infamous Rotten Tomatoes. And I, I listened to your discussion that you were having on Fade to Black about that. But before we get into that, because I think the scandal is still slightly bubbling away. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Fade to Black and uh, what goes on on your pod. It's a weekly podcast that I do with fellow film critics and very good friends, Hannah Flynn and Amon Woman. And it's interesting. I think we're all slightly different kinds of film critics and have different outlooks on things. I love horror. Amon hates horror. <laughs> so we always disagree on that, which is quite fun. Uh, so we review weekly the films that are coming out, but with three people coming at it with slightly different <laughs> opinions and sort of arguing, but lovingly. <laughs> it's a loving podcast. And yeah, it's, we're all it's really good warm. friends. So yeah, don't worry. Yeah, it's a, it, there's a really nice vibe between the three of you. And as I said, uh, you were talking about this this scandal, this scandal that emerged just the other week. Um, so it's still kind of, like I said, bubbling away that a PR firm was paying film critics um, $50 to bump up a score, give a positive review so they could bump up a score of the movie Ophelia. Um, then there was this huge Vulture article all about it. I mean, what's, what is your take on on this, on, on this idea of Rotten Tomatoes being this arbiter of taste? I think it's collectively we've sort of done it to ourselves, which is not to take the blame off of Rotten Tomatoes because they obviously came up with the mechanic of having the percentages and saying this movie is 60% good. I don't know what that means. If you really think about it, what does 60% good, <laughs> what does that translate to? It's like it's sort of a meaningless phrase. Uh, but, you know, we, we're in a culture right now where we are fed so much all the time. It's just information, internet, you go outside, like ads everywhere, people. It's like there's so much happening at every single second of everybody's lives. And so I think we as humans have this tendency to want to shortcut, find the shortcut through things. And so there is something very seductive and tempting about Rotten Tomatoes where you're going to the cinema and you don't know what to see. So you Google all the films and you say, well, this one has a higher score than this one. So we should go see this one. Mm. So I, I say this in a non sort of blamey way. I'm not saying you're a terrible person. If you rely on Rotten Tomato scores, I understand, but I think reducing the entirety of film culture to a number ends up destroying the thing that's really beautiful about cinema, which is that we're all different people and we have very different life experiences and different outlooks. And we, we treasure different things and we value different things. And the beauty is in the disagreement. That's my favorite thing is when you go with a friend to the cinema and you just have like the most wildly different take on a movie and then you go for two hours afterwards and you discuss it and you come out of that conversation having understood the film 10,000 times more. So I think the thing with Rotten Tomatoes, it's great if you want to find people's reviews. It's a good, I use it quite a lot to go. I Google and then I see who's reviewed it and I go and I click off and then I read everyone's opinions because I, I just love 
seeing the differences and seeing how how much like my opinion on something can be challenged and bettered by having someone else go, oh, have you thought about looking at it this way? And you go, no, I didn't. <laughs> That's a really great point. So yeah, it's tricky. I'm not in a, I'm not in the like burn this website down right. sort of right. mob. I've not got a pitchfork in my hand. <laughs> I'm more in the let's all reconsider how we use this website because it could be a useful tool, but go read. Reading is great. As Taylor Swift once said, I think in a song. Uh, you mean, <laughs> I, I, I can neither confirm. I, I like, I like shake it off. That's that's the literal extent of my Taylor Swift knowledge. Uh, I very much enjoy that song. Beyond that, I got nothing. So I'm going to go with yes. She definitely sang those lyrics. <laughs> oh no, I think she said spelling is great. Oh. spelling and reading is very similar. So okay. Oh, right. So if I if I wish to quote Taylor Rift, Taylor Taylor Rift, see, I don't even know her name. Taylor Swift, spelling is great. You mentioned going to the cinema with a friend there and, and that experience. We're about to head to our virtual cinema. But as a, a film critic, you obviously see most of your movies, if not all of them, in an actual cinema, including, I, I imagine, some streaming movies, because streamers considerably um, now uh, will screen their big movies at a cinema for press. Um, is the cinema quite a sacred place for you? Yes, because I live on my own. And if I'm at home, I tend to watch stuff just, it's like me and my plush Brogu, which is a bit sad. <laughs> so uh, I think what's special about the cinema to me is the collective experience. And even if you're not talking to the person beside you, you can kind of feel the energy coming off of them. So uh I like going to the screening room and just feeling the vibe mm. and going, ooh, everyone was really enraptured by that. Or, oh, everyone seemed very uncomfortable for some reason. Why is that? Uh, you know, that's the, I think that's the thing that as much as we say cinema is in danger, there is always going to be a desire for that, for people to be with other people watching movies. Cause it's, I don't know, it's special. It's nice. It is. It is. And on that, Beautiful note. Clarice, it's time to leave this reality and enter the multiverse. We're heading for a dimension of pure film where our virtual cinema awaits. You are our guide. We are your audience. Let's go on a trip to the movies. So we push open the doors to our temple of film and find ourselves in the foyer. There's an excited buzz, as there always is in a cinema foyer, the hum of anticipation. It's your perfect cinema trip, Clarice. Who have you picked, living or dead, to go with you? So my initial thought was Nicolas Cage, because I don't think that man has ever said an uninteresting sentence in his life. <laughs> and I would just want to hear what he has to say about the movie, the seats, the popcorn, like everything, the carpet. I bet he has great opinions on theater carpet. Uh, but then I realized, oh, I wouldn't want to watch the movie because I would say, Nicolas Cage, do you want to just skip this and just talk about stuff? So <laughs> have you have you had the chance to interview him ever? No. He is he is that fascinating. I had to, do you remember the movie Knowing that he did? Uh, the one where it's, it's an end of the world apocalyptic kind of thing. And I, I interviewed him, clearly did not want to talk about the movie for whatever reason. And I think for some reason I mentioned dinosaurs, bang, we're into, do you know that chickens have exactly the same DNA as a Tyrannosaurus Rex? Perfect. Legend. Oh, 
I love dinosaurs and I would love for him to tell me about dinosaurs. I love learning facts and I feel like he's the kind of guy who would just tell you loads. So I'm going to have to put him as like a runner up. Okay. But you said dead. And I thought, well, now I have what I feel like is a moral obligation to pick someone who was alive before cinema existed. Wow. To go, look what we invented. You've never seen this in your life. Like, check it out. What an amazing idea. That, has that been That's, anyone else's logic? No, no one has <laughs> ever gone here before. Okay. This is a first for a trip to the movies. You are taking someone so they can experience cinema for the first time. Who? Right? And and obviously that's really tricky because it's like I could take Cleopatra. <laughs> you could. She'd, she'd love it. Yeah. Um, I could take Anne Boleyn. Um, but I decided I settled on Mary Shelley because A, um, I think she would really enjoy the film I chose. B, um, you know, the thing with Mary Shelley is that she wasn't massively appreciated in her lifetime because she was always kind of Percy Shelley's wife. So I'd want to go, Mary Shelley, look, everybody loves you and thinks you're really cool. And look at all these movies about Frankenstein that we made that would just like blow her mind. And then I think because of that, she would have no complaints. Cause I think that's the tricky thing when you're inviting somebody very like famous and accomplished, mm. I don't want to disappoint them. Mm. So if I take someone who has literally never had this experience before, I'm the best person she's ever met instantly. <laughs> she love loves it. me. I love it. Yeah. So that's my logic. That's fantastic logic. Mary Shelley's going with you. So uh, Frankenstein, obviously, um, often called the first ever science fiction novel. Um, I was uh, lurking around your Twitter, doing research. You're something of a science fiction fan, aren't you? Was, was Frankenstein... Uh, where that began for you, reading that book? Oh, that's a really great question. I don't think specifically Frankenstein. I mean, I when I was really little, um, <laughs> it started with, the, this is a really specific American reference, but there was this book series called, um, I think it's called The Bailey School Kids, where it was one of those like kids' novelizations and every single book, they would become convinced that one of their teachers or like somebody who worked to the ice cream parlor was actually a monster or a ghoul or a vampire or the phantom of the opera. And they would spend the entire book trying to like expose them to the world. And then the book would end with them going, yeah, that's actually pretty stupid. <laughs> They're probably not a monster, but then the book would go, but are they? <laughs> and I was really obsessed with a book series. And I, but I think also that and Wishbone, which again is not really in the UK. It's another book series about a Jack Russell Terrier who um, him and his owner will go through life lessons and they'll always go, wow, this really reminds me of this classic piece of literature. And then they would reenact, they had a TV show where they'd reenact it but the dog would be one of the main characters. So you would have Dog Frankenstein, uh, <laughs> Dog Pride and Prejudice, where he was Miss Darcy, <laughs> dog, dog Hercules. Oh, oh. And in a really weird way, I think those books were actually the first, my first introduction to genre, sci-fi, horror, fantasy, classic literature. And then from that, 
I went on to Frankenstein and uh, I loved Lord of the Rings as a kid and eventually start like all this stuff that I love now. I would be lying if I said I went to those first. It was through <laughs> Wishbone. I, oh, I, I appreciate, I appreciate <laughs> your candor and your honesty on that subject. You could have gone, that's right, age 11, I read Frankenstein, and that really inspired me to research more science fiction. That's great. I, and I know what I'm doing straight after this interview. I'm going on YouTube to look up Wishbone because I want to see a Jack Russell Hercules. Uh, I don't even know what that might look like. He had the little outfit on the little skirt. It was great. They, they, they'd always put him in the little outfit and it was it was adorable every single time. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. Well, it's you and Mary Shelley going to the cinema. There is a clock on the wall in the foyer, Clarice. It reads a specific time. What time of day have we gone to the cinema? It's 3.30 p.m., yeah. which is a, a very specific very, time. Very <laughs> specific, yeah. But I think the ideal situation, especially for me and Mary Shelley, if we're doing this together, is we have a late afternoon screening, and then I want to go for a very, very long dinner into drinks, maybe, where we talk about the movie, and I become very good friends with Mary Shelley. So this is... <laughs> The plan, because I think it goes back to what I said earlier, my favorite combination is film and then loads of time to talk about the film afterwards. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. And I believe, so again, uh, Mary Shelley famously, I think came up with the idea for Frankenstein after having a waking dream. Uh, and uh, I believe that you are currently dreaming horror movies with higher production values than existing horror movies. <laughs> This is the thing. I've been sitting around going, oh, God, I haven't really seen a, like a scary horror movie, a really, really frightening, uh, kept me up at night. I think the last one was Hereditary. Oh, I couldn't look into corners for weeks after that. So I've been, I've been waiting for the next Hereditary, and then I realized, oh, it's because my imagination has... Like, I don't know what's happened. Because it's not that the dreams have particularly gotten scary. I've always had quite, like, a lot of nightmares, a very overactive imagination. But it's, yeah, it's like the cinematography. It's just, like, it's looking gorgeous now, the lighting. I had one dream where I, I woke up in a hotel room and there was one lamp lit and it was just casting this, like, beautiful, <laughs> beautiful like perfectly in the shadows in the corner. I was like, my God, if my subconscious could win an Oscar, <laughs> I feel like it deserves it, which is weird because it's nothing my conscious brain is doing. So I give no credit to myself, <laughs> but something in that is like, <laughs> oh. I don't know. <laughs> I, Some, something's working and, and, and Blumhouse should hook me up to one of those dream machines <laughs> and get me to write Megan too. Cause I think, I think I could. Oh, I can't, I'm, I'm excited. I'm a big, big, big fan of Megan. So I'm, I'm looking forward to whatever they do with Megan too. Uh, and I'm planning on dressing as Megan for Halloween, which I thought was going to be a really good idea. And then I told someone, they went, you know, everyone's going to be doing Megan this year. Cause it's the first Halloween since Megan came out. I'm like, Oh, Damn it, there'll be some better Megans than me. I think you have to I I don't believe this thing with Halloween that you have to dress as something different. Everyone's gonna be Barbie and Ken, and I am right. really excited to see the Barbies and Kens. Yeah. I, I think I think Megan's I don't I think Megan's slightly niche now. I think you're right. I think it's gonna be a Barbie and Ken 
Halloween. You're going to the cinema at 3.30 with Mary Shelley so you can have dinner and drinks afterwards. Right, you booked the tickets for this trip, Clarice. So where in the auditorium are we going to be sitting? This one I, I get made fun of for a little bit, but I am a front row tent center kind of person. I want to say with a caveat that this is in cinemas where you've got a little bit of space between the seats and the screen. If it's like two inches away or the IMAX, I'm not, I'm not insane. I just want to clarify that. Okay. Uh, but I don't know. I've, I've always really liked the front row. Okay, that's great clarification because uh, genuinely, uh, this is the least picked seat on the podcast. I mean, I guess a lesser seat would be the front row at the sides, but this is not a popular seat. So does it come from childhood? Was it something you did as a kid? And it's like the nostalgia of remembering going to the front row and that's why you continue to do it because it's not the best seat. See, I would argue it is because, and I know people, other guests have talked about this, that there are a lot of distractions now. At the cinema, people are getting their phones out. They're doing stuff with their popcorn hands or all over. Like there's a lot of stuff to take your attention away from the screen. But I've never had that issue because they're behind me. Anything could be happening. I don't know because it's just me and the screen. So I've always picked it, I think, just for pure immersion. Because you would just if you sit in the front row, there's nothing else. Like you might as well be inside the movie, which is ultimately what I'd like to do. I think when I really love a film, uh, <laughs> my like impulse is that I want to climb, you know, like I want to climb inside of it, mm. like a reverse, uh, the girl from the ring <laughs> and go back. I want to go in the TV. So sitting in the front row to me, logistically is the closest I can get to doing that. And as much as I said, I love watching films with other people. I kind of only want to feel them subconsciously. I don't want to actually know that they're there and that that guy is picking his nose, you know. I want to be away from that. So <laughs> that's I but I'm fully aware that this no nobody else thinks like this. So I I'm not trying to say that this is a normal place to sit. But Mary Shelley won't know. She won't Cuz she's never had to make this choice before and I will tell her everybody does this. It's the coolest place to sit. <laughs> your logic is sound. I get it. I get not seeing anyone else. It's like your exclusive screening room. I mean, I get the logic until you become Samara from the ring crawling towards the cinema screen. At that point there's just that's my caveat. That sounds you you mean that metaphorically. You don't actually want to climb into the film. Like the kid in Last Action Hero. Oh, yeah. No, exactly like that. <laughs> I think not metaphorically. Right. Because I don't know. But we're just when you really, really love a movie, you just, I want the movie to be everything all the time. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. I want it to be like, my, that's my whole world now. I'm like Barbie. After I saw Barbie, I got angry that I came out of the cinema and I saw things that weren't colored pink. It was very <laughs> upsetting. No, I get that. I was like, that. this is disgusting. I do. I do get that. Yeah, I get that a lot. Okay. Okay. So you're right in the dead center on the front row with Mary Shelley. The final thing we need before we leave the foyer and start walking towards the auditorium. Oh, the air is full of wonderful smells. All manner of snacks and foodstuffs are available at the various counters. What are you choosing to eat? I, so I'm not anti-popcorn or anything, but if I could choose anything, I would bring an entire pot of brewed coffee 
with some milk on the side because I get quite sleepy all the time. <laughs> I'm a sleepy person and I have a very serious caffeine addiction. So I feel like the only problem with the 3.30 screening is my brain might start wanting a nap halfway through. But if I can just have the coffee, I'm good. I'm covered. I mean, you you you, you don't want any of the cinema nachos, the hot dogs, the pizza, no minstrels, no pick and mix, nothing. You you, you want your classic pot of coffee. Kind No, because I... Again, it's a distraction thing because I'm so about the immersion that if I'm eating popcorn, but the character on screen is doing something different, I feel like I feel like it's almost disrespectful. If John Wick is shooting people and I'm just like stuffing my face, <laughs> I feel like I've, I feel like I've disrespected him. So I, I guess yeah, it's sort of a, a reverence thing, but also a like, I just want to be fully present and paying attention choice. You can have a pot of freshly brewed coffee. I just so we don't make a mistake. What kind of milk would you like? Regular milk, like semi-skimmed, oat, almond? I'm partial to an oat. That would be quite nice, actually. Got you. Yeah, let me. I'll just let them know. So it's definitely an oat milk, not a regular milk. And we're done. And also, yeah. I feel like my thing with coffee is I used to feel very bad about my caffeine addiction until I read that David Lynch has eight cups a day. And to me, he's the smartest man alive. So <laughs> I think that made it worse because I started drinking more because I thought maybe if I got to a certain number of cups, <laughs> like my brain would unlock <laughs> and I'd just become the, the most creative genius person ever to live. Mm. Uh, it didn't happen, um, <laughs> oh. unfortunately. I mean, we should add that. It's not only never meet your idols, never have crazy ideas reinforced by your idols because then you're more likely to go, if he does it, they do it, it's fine. Yeah, and I think it's it's maybe reducing his talent by saying, oh, he just drinks <laughs> a lot of coffee. That's why Mulholland Drive happened. It's probably a bit more than that. <laughs> yeah, but... Or maybe not. I'm going to try it now. Yeah, I'll get ready for Mulholland Drive 2 further down the drive uh, after my eighth cup of coffee today. Let's see. Uh, right then, let's leave the foyer, Clarice, and walk down the corridor towards the auditorium. Now, the corridor's looking pretty bare at the moment, so I'm going to put up some posters to represent some of your most important movie memories. And the first poster I'm putting up depicts, Clarice, your fondest movie memory. This was really hard, but I... There, there's one that I've, I've kind of saved because it's, it's another answer to another question. So the answer I want to give is when I saw Mad Max Fury Road for the first time, I was sitting in the front row. Uh, and I liked the Mad Max movies, but I was never, I had no strong feelings about them. And I just remember about, I want to say about 20 minutes in and it's when they're really starting the the truck and the car chase aspect of the film I just, just started crying because I had the thought of I don't deserve this like I what have I done in my life <laughs> this movie's so good I don't I don't deserve this I I should have been a better person and then maybe I would have deserved this movie this perfect miracle of a film um, and I've, I've had that a couple of times 
since and before. But to me, Fury Road is the most vivid because it. Ju- I think it just came out of nowhere. I I don't know if you remember. I feel like no one had the expectations weren't that high. They were high, but I feel like everyone was kind of gobsmacked by Fury Road when they first saw it. Yeah, I, I think even Tom, I remember that Cannes press conference. I think Tom Hardy was gobsmacked when he first saw it as well, because I think famously he was uh, unsure of what the fuck they were doing on set. He just didn't have George's George Miller's overall vision. And I, that's that famous quote where he's like, I just want to say sorry to George. If I'd known exactly what he was trying to do and what this was going to be, I'd have got on board a lot easier or something like that. I don't want to misquote him, but you know what I mean? It was something along those lines. I f- I just feel like did he not see the guy on the guitar? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like on the bungee cords. I I'm I am happy that he sees it now, but I feel like he should have had one clue because we had no clue. Tom Hardy had one clue, and it was the guy with the guitar. So <laughs> yeah, you know. Do you cry? I mean, it's weird. I I I. I I think I've mentioned this before on the on the show, but I do get very tearful over beautifully orchestrated action. It, it often makes me cry. I'm a, I'm a cry. I cry at emotional stuff, but also like just if something just like uh, like about three times, for example, in Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning, I was just like I just felt my eyes well up, and I sort of give this like almost like a. <laughs> Like just because I can't control my emotion because the spectacle of the film is so utterly amazing. I definitely do, and I I think it's it's that feeling of you just feel very grateful, which I think is a, a more sensible version of what I felt over Fury Road. Where if you just see something so spectacular and well constructed, and it's such a testament to all of the work that the director and all the crew and all of these people put into this one moment of cinema. I think it's only sort of right to get emotional and to go, wow, it's it's really great that this exists, that human beings can make this for other people and we can all go and watch it and go, wow, Tom Cruise really drove off that cliff for us. <laughs> like, how can that not make you want to cry a little bit? Oh, right. A Mad Max Fury Road poster is going up in the first empty frame. So we continue down the corridor. And our second frame, I'm going to put a poster that depicts your worst movie memory in it. I don't have like a great memory in terms of my childhood, but I distinctly remember the first time I learned that movies could disappoint me. And it was watching Attack of the Clones, <laughs> which I was I'm a huge, I love Star Wars and I have revisited the prequel sins and I think there's some stuff about them that I like. There's so many memes about them that they're they're at least fun to watch mm-hmm. in 2023. But I remember I was 11 and my dad worked for a company that very occasionally did sort of fan previews. So it was maybe one day before Attack of the Clones was out in cinemas and everyone was really excited, but we were late and I don't know why we were late. And the only seats left were, and I know this is a contradiction, they were in the front row, but the way that my brain remembers it, there was two inches between the seat and the screen, which I think can't be possible. (laughs) (laughs) In my memory, it's like my nose was touching the screen. That's how close it was. And I was sat next to a guy dressed as a stormtrooper 
and just the the most distinct part of it is I remember the over the film starting and it was like the first scene and I the stormtrooper just like slumped. <laughs> it was like all the joy was sapped out of his body. <laughs> Oh my god! And I think that's the thing. It wasn't even that I was disappointed by it because I was eleven. I didn't. What did I know about cinema? But I think I felt so strongly that the stormtroopers' light, like his day, had been ruined, <laughs> and he was going to take weeks to recover from this experience. That that overshadows any instance of me being in a cinema with people talking or people being rude. It's just the sadness of the stormtrooper. That's a, it stayed with me. It's a, I, I won't lie. It's a heartbreaking image. I, I can understand that as an 11-year-old seeing a sad stormtrooper. There's something you never want to see. A sad, you want to see an angry, evil, committed stormtrooper, but a sad stormtrooper. There's a reason there isn't one in the entire saga. I know. It's like it's not it's not as fun when they get defeated. <laughs> it's just really sad. So you've revisited uh, the prequels recently. What what do you consider the best of those first three? I I've got I've got mine. Having rewatched them and I, it surprised me. It wasn't what I thought after the first watch of all three. I think if you remove the really questionable uh, stereotyped elements or stereotyped characters, Mm -hmm. I would say Phantom Menace because, right, I love the pod racing scene. It's really fun. I think the battle at Naboo is well done. And because it's the first movie, you haven't, (laughs) I think by the third one, you're just you're too in it by that point, and there's there's too much weight on sort of an eventuality that you know is gonna happen, and I'm not sure. I don't know. It doesn't work as well for me as I think it works for other people. As much as I love the Hugh McGregor shouting on lava, uh, I stand for democracy. Like I love that speech, but I don't know if that scene has the emotional weight that it wants me to to feel. So, I, yeah, I would kind of, I would say Phantom Menace. Yeah, agree on all points. I love General Grievous as a character in Revenge of the Sith. I think he's brilliant. Um, but, yeah, Phantom Menace, I think it's a combination of Darth Maul and Liam Neeson. Uh, just he, uh, Liam Neeson just adds so much gravitas to that movie. And it, it's the one that really feels like a Star Wars movie. I think the other two just don't feel as Star Wars-y, if that makes any sense. It feels much more like... The original trilogy, Phantom Menace. So, yeah, agree on all points. Uh, Right then, let's carry on down the corridor. Our third poster that we're putting up, Clarice, depicts the last performance that brought you to tears. Well, I think if if I was being technical, I would probably say um, Guardians of the Galaxy 3 because I had it on in the background recently and I had to leave the room. Because it was the bit where Layla, the space otter, is talking about the sky being beautiful and forever, and I just, I just walked out the room and closed the door, oh and then I came back in for the end to turn it off. <laughs> um, but I feel like that's not, I can't, I wasn't really there for it, so I'm not gonna give that answer. I think looking back at what I've watched recently, I would probably say Margot Robbie in Barbie, the final speech where I guess not to ruin it too much for anyone who hasn't seen it. I think that's four people. There's four people that you'd be ruining it for. (laughs) 
I want to be respectful to those four people, but as we all know, the film sort of takes that very like hard turn into being about the beauty of being alive and how precious it is to be a human being, even if it can be really difficult and you can feel lost and you can feel like you don't know who you are or what you're meant to do. You can put all of that aside and just be thankful. And then it's the montage of like real life crew members and their friends and family. And I just, I don't, I don't know who didn't cry. I would, I would be worried if anyone didn't even just have a single tear or a little sniffle. I didn't. I, uh, that was the, I don't know. I, I didn't. Oh, no. I loved Barbie, loved Barbie. But it was it, 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 like like you just said, it's such a sharp right at that point. It was sort of on this very self-aware sort of like just knowing film. And then it does this sharp right into really unabashed sentimentality. And it just I, I, maybe I was just sort of waiting for the the undercut and the sort of knowing like button on it that sort of let me as a little bit of a cynic go. But if you didn't buy into this, there's there's your off ramp. And it, it never came. So I was, I was it's the, the le- my least favorite bit, weirdly. You know what? That is, that is fair. But I think that's the stuff that always gets me because I, it's very truthful to life is that everything's really funny until it's not. <laughs> and then it, I, I like getting kind of sucker punched with emotion, which I think Guardians of the Galaxy is another great example of that because you're laughing for so much of it. And then it's like animal torture. <laughs> like, oh, I'm just, I wasn't prepared for this. I think if you go into a film, you know, very much expecting tragedy and hardship, you can kind of steal yourself up for it and be like, okay, who can I carry this burden well? But it's, yeah, it's when a movie just comes out of nowhere with, Hey, I, I know you've had fun with Ken dancing, but have you ever thought about what it means to exist? You go, no. <laughs> what are you doing this to me? <laughs> oh, all right then. A poster for Barbie is going up for the last performance that brought you to tears. And our final poster before we enter the auditorium depicts Clarice, your unpopular movie opinion. I'm really scared to say this one. Um, so I have just gone for the one that. I don't think it's that unpopular or that controversial, but whenever I say it, people get really mad. And it's that I love Alien Covenant and I think it's better than Aliens. What the hell are you talking about, Clarice? You're going to have to justify it. (sighs) Okay. May I approach the bench? (laughs) (laughs) Please. Please come forward and and whisper softly your explanation for why Alien Covenant is better than Aliens. So I love Alien and the concept and the terror of what is Alien is the idea of being faced with the utterly unexplainable, like an enemy that you have no idea how to defeat, you've never seen before, it's beyond your wildest imagination and it's one, it's like one guy, it's one xenomorph, he's, and they're so scary. Aliens, I don't think, I think it's a very well-made action movie, but James Cameron, to me, it's, lo- it's if you suddenly introduce loads of aliens and you just go, well, actually, if you just shoot one with a gun, it dies. For me, it's taken away everything that was interesting about the first movie because Lots of things, if you point a gun at them, 
they and you shoot them, they die. Like you could have made aliens and it was just instead of the xenomorphs, it was like polar bears. It was just hundreds of polar bears and they're just shooting them wildly. It's it's <laughs> I think it's, it's sort of, uh, uh, I don't know. I mean the polar bears aren't doing particularly I mean, well at the moment. I mean a movie about polar bears yeah. being shot is it's a, it's a it's a big swing. I don't know that it would have had the fist pumping okay. finale that aliens had. But this is of die polar bears. <laughs> die polar bears. Yeah, I, I think James even even the maestro James Cameron would struggle to get die polar bears off the ground. True. May I whatever insert animal you really don't like. Okay, aliens. And you could have had somewhat the same film. Okay. But then what I really like about Alien Covenant is that it goes back to the idea of imagine this thing turned up that you just never thought of and your brain can't conceive it how would you react and the answer alien covenant gives is badly and that's that's the short answer of why i love it okay so okay uh, <laughs> so I, i'll be completely transparent aliens is my favorite alien movie i think it's better than the original uh, i think james cameron basically went i can't cannot make alien again because it's a perfect film so i have to approach this in a different way made a kind of vietnam analogy with these super armed marines going in thinking they're gonna win easily and then the aliens come at them and that's why i like aliens now your description of alien covenant sounds great but that's not really alien covenant is it because if that was the case where it was like a lot like alien where this creature appears and everyone's like what are we gonna do but there's a lot of stupid noodling about AI and David, and I just can't get on board with that. I don't know why Ridley Scott felt the need to put that in an Alien movie. Make Blade Runner Covenant. Do that in your Blade Runner universe. But Alien Covenant with not enough alien in and also a little bit of a shoddy CGI alien. Thoughts? I do really enjoy the stuff with David because there's something about Michael Fassbender's performance that is so frightening to me. And I find, I think he's one of the best representatives, like the best robots on screen that I've ever seen because he's so, he's so conscious of his own inhumanity and yet he's desperate to be human or to understand what human is. And he has this obsession with I'm created, but can I be creator? And I think all of that stuff is really interesting, but because it's really Scott, it's delivered in this quite camp way where it's Michael Fassbender and Michael Fassbender and they're like with a flute going, let me do the blowing for both of us. I just think it's fun. It's a fun way to explore like the nature of, of AI. I understand why that part is less enjoyable or understandable to other people. But I think my my favorite element of Alien Covenant is just that sequence where they first land the ship and the Neomorph comes out of the guy's back. And then it's like they're just running around and shooting themselves, blowing the ship up, running around in the grass. I think that is one of my favorite sequences in the entire franchise. I think it's perfect. Uh, I actually really agree with you. I think that whole sequence where they first land and then they... they she goes into the med bay and it's it's horrible and the ship blows up because, and I, I, I'm just going to say it, because it makes them isolated, trapped 
on this alien world with something they don't understand happening, which happens in another movie called Aliens, uh, which is also very good. (laughs) (laughs) Which is not, I don't think Aliens is bad. I just, I would, and I would maybe choose it. I really like the David Fincher one. Yeah. Do you know what that is? I think it's just a test. That happens. That happens whenever someone gives an unpopular opinion so unpopular, the alarm goes off. That's to say, <laughs> that's to say, Alien Covenant cannot be considered better than Aliens Alarm. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. Well, can we put up the po- the poster? But maybe it's on fire or something. <laughs> this is absolutely fine. This is your unpopular opinion. I re- I respect it. I I disagree, but that, uh, with with the caveat that that's what opinions are, and this is your unpopular opinion. And I I love that it's such a curveball. I'm going to say one last thing, and this is this is such a, 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 a idiotic, geeky thing. But the other problem with Alien Covenant is the fact that when Billy Crudup's character gets the face hugger on him, like it seems like I think five minutes later the alien bursts out of him, which completely undoes the timeline that Ridley Scott created for Aliens incubation in a human. In the original Alien, that is fair, and there's a thing with the the naming because all the androids are named in alphabetical order. But then one of the aliens in Alien Covenant, one of the androids in Alien Covenant, messes that up. But I, the answer to that, I would say, is directed by Ridley Scott. I feel like he has no respect for his own rules, which is what kind of makes him fun as a filmmaker because <laughs> he would just go, "No, I'm in charge. I'm going to do what I want." Uh, and just just so uh, just so there's a, there's a little bit of parity in crazy opinions, I I, re- I gave Prometheus five stars when I reviewed it uh, because I thought it was that good, uh, which has raised a few eyebrows. So I'm absolutely not some sort of arbiter of taste on the Alien series. I feel like everyone has some kind of controversial opinion on the Alien franchise. And I feel like we should all just make peace together. <laughs> well, because that's the only way that we can stop the aliens is if we're united, united front. Exactly. Exactly. I love it. We are leaving the corridor, putting up a poster for Alien Covenant as your unpopular opinion. It's better than aliens, but we're leaving with a warmth in our hearts. So. We've reached the final set of doors into the auditorium. I'm pushing them open, and there is a queue of people here. They want to join yourself and Mary Shelley in the auditorium. Do you want a busy screen? Do you want that communal experience, or do you just want Mary Shelley all to yourself? Yes. I. Everyone can come in, but maybe no one else sits in the front row. <laughs> so... Because I don't want people bothering Mary Shelley. Don't ask her for an autograph. <laughs> don't ask for a selfie. She doesn't know what that is. Just sit behind her, be respectful, put your phones away and and watch. Well, the crowd go wild. They pour into the auditorium to join you and Mary Shelley. Now, before the movie you picked for us tonight plays on the big screen, there's a few other things we're going to play. And the first thing we're going to play is the trailer for the movie that you're most looking forward to seeing at the cinema. Well, I, I feel like Mary would enjoy this one a lot because it's it's based off a book that's sort of semi-inspired by her book. Uh, but Poor Things by Yorgos Lanthimos was just 
debuted at the Venice Film Festival and got incredible reviews. But I am such a Yogos Lanthimos fangirl that I I didn't need to read them. Mm-hmm. I knew it was going to be good. <laughs> so I, I've been excited all year. Yeah, it, I, I'm really excited about it. And it's one of those movies that I'm going to try and stay away from any literature about in the run up to it, because I've just seen a couple of stills and I'm like, what the hell is this movie? So that's exciting. Yeah. All right. Um, we'll play the trailer for Yorgos Lanthimos's Poor Things. All right. Next up. We're going to play on the big screen, the movie moment that makes you literally or metaphorically pump your fist in the air. Okay, so it's kind of like, I kind of need to like act it out. But sure. <laughs> so it's like the helmet's coming off. I am no man. And then she stabs. Uh, so it's, a scene, it's from Return of the King with uh, Miranda Otto as Eowyn, which I mentioned before I was the like the biggest Lord of the Rings head when I was around the time the movies were coming out. I had a newsletter that I ran with my friend that we only shared between ourselves. (laughs) So (laughs) it wasn't really a newsletter. We were just (laughs) writing like poetry and things that we love about Lord of the Rings in it. And we went dressed up to see Return of the King. I was Arwen and she was Frodo and I had my ears and it was just the coolest. Anyway, that that was my other contender for my favorite movie moment ever is getting to see that for the first time as a as a kid. It's it's such a moment. I I you know I I, I flip flop between the Battle of Helm's Deep and the Battle outside Minas Tirith as the as the, as the best battle in Lord of the Rings. And I often find myself actually preferring the one in Return of the King. My only caveat, and it's a weird thing, and I only thought it once, and I've watched it since, and I've never thought it. My only caveat with that moment, the witch king who she kills seems like he could be a bit of a misogynist just because he seems like that kind of guy. And when he says, no man can kill me, and she says, I am no man, I always think she really rolled the dice because he could have just meant person, but he said man instead of person. And when she goes, I am no man, he could have gone, sorry, I meant person. No person can kill me. That's that- I misspoke. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm an ally, I swear. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, what 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 a moment. I'm assuming your favorite Lord of the Rings movie is that final film. Uh, am I assuming wrongly? Yes. And I only for the reason that you have so much emotional investment returned in just very sad scenes. The bit that really gets me as well, more in crying terms, is right at the end when they're at the gates and Aragorn turns around and just goes, for Frodo, and then they all run. And I just, I'm going to cry thinking about it. (laughs) (laughs) I think every people, especially because I always watch the extended editions. So it's Mm. been like nine hours. (laughs) that you have spent with these people and by that point it's like i know aragorn better than he knows himself (laughs) and seeing them get to that line and be ready to sacrifice everything for frodo is just oh that's that's cinema isn't it those days those sofa days where you're like got nothing on gonna do the extended editions all in one day those are some of the best. Is it, is it weird? I'm sure there are people who are more active and go, oh, I climbed a mountain. To me, one of the best days is watching the extended editions back to back. 
with I would recommend if you make the food that they're eating on screen. I did that last time with lembas bread, stew. I made the disgusting fish soup that Eowyn makes Aragorn in, I think, Return of the King. <laughs> but I felt accurate. So so are you, are you guessing at these recipes or are there actual Lord of the Rings recipes online for how you make these dishes? Oh, it's all online. <laughs> People have been there, done that, figured cool. out how to make lembas bread. Of course they have. What a stupid question. Yeah, of course that's that's a thing. Uh, right then, the next thing we're going to play on the big screen is what you consider cinema's most shocking moment. My answer, I think I don't want to say what actually happens because it's the twist in Old Boy. Uh, yeah. And I don't want to say because A, I don't know if everyone listening will have seen it and I do not want to ruin it for them. And B... If I say it out of context, it sounds like just like gross for being gross for no reason. It sounds like shocking for being shocking sake, but you have to watch it in the context of the film mm. and the brilliance of Park Chan-wook of how he can take the absolute darkest parts of humanity and still film them with humanity and and empathy and feeling like that's what makes him such a good filmmaker so that if you actually watch the film at least for me and you get to that point it's the worst and most horrible thing but you also feel so awful for the character that it's happened to because you've just been on this journey with him I'm really trying to dance around it because I, I don't I don't want to say it you're doing a fantastic job because you've basically, I've seen it and you've sold me on wanting to see it again, even knowing the twist. But yes, what a shocking moment that is. And if anyone hasn't seen it, it's just, I, 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 I obviously didn't know the twist when I walked in, but the premise itself, a guy's kidnapped, he's held in a room prisoner for 15 years, no idea why, comes out and then begins this journey of trying to find out who and why this happened to him who did it and why this happened right that's the premise isn't it yes uh which during lockdown i made the mistake of re-watching that movie <laughs> it's, it was not the right time <laughs> it was not the right time to do it um yeah. if, if we ever have another lockdown just my number one tip don't watch old boy don't do it that sounds horrible <laughs> i can't think of another word that just sounds like some sort of like were you doing penance for something had you wronged Someone could just, I, I need to, I need to do this self-flagellation like Paul Bettany in Da Vinci Code. It was naivety because I love Park Chan work mm. and I, I don't know if you've seen Stoker. He's, he's one with Nicole Kidman. Um, yeah. That's sort of a comfort film. I, I know it sounds really weird because it's really dark, but it's so dark that I think I find it comforting. And I thought, Oh well, maybe if I rewatch Old Boy, it's such a great movie, you know. I'll be and then I, I sort of forgot about the whole he's held captive for fifteen years in one room and gets one meal delivered a day, and the food looks really great. And it was sort of better than the food I was making myself at that time. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, oh god, do I no? Don't wish that you were in his position. That's really messed up. <laughs> Right, we're playing the twist from Old Boy, the original version, of course, as we've been discussing. Not the US version. If someone hasn't seen it and decides to watch it, do not watch the Josh Brolin version. Do yourself a favor. F, right, penultimate thing we're going to do before we get to the movie you've picked for us is play the line 
from a movie or the piece of dialogue from a movie that most affected you? This is, <laughs> I mean, this is really tough because there have been so many beautifully moving written pieces of dialogue in the entire history of cinema. But the the line that always keeps coming back to me because it's very personal is from a Brie Larson, the Brie Larson film that she directed and the only one uh, called Unicorn Store in 2017. It was a Netflix film. And it's about this woman called Kit who uh, is like she is sort of into a lot of child-like things. She loves rainbows and glitter and um, and she does all this art that gets dismissed by her art school because it's too girly and it's too childish. And she gets sent a, a letter, this mysterious letter that says, come to this store and we will give you a unicorn. And she goes to the store and the salesman is Samuel Jackson. And you're like, oh my God, <laughs> I this is the, the unicorn is perfect. He's going to give this woman a unicorn. I love it. And the film, I guess, becomes about her. It's really hard to explain because it sounds really stupid, but it's a great movie. The film's about her going on this journey of acceptance of like, what does the unicorn mean to me? Why do I want it? Uh, why do I feel so ashamed about wanting a unicorn? Because for a lot of the film, she's hiding it from anybody, everybody, because she assumes kind of quite rightfully that they will think she's insane if she says, I'm getting a unicorn. Uh, and it I won't say how it ends, but it kind of comes this full circle uh, journey for her. And there's this line where she's talking about the guy, she's, she goes to work at an office temporarily and she's talking about the guys who work there who dismiss all her ideas because they are too girly, too childish, too cutesy. And she says, it's these dudes that I just tiptoe around because I think that they know so many things. They don't. I know things. And that just, I don't know, that just hit me so hard because I think it's it's an experience that I've always had and it's a thing that I've always been fighting against. I think not only just being a woman, but... Um, I found out a couple of years ago that I was autistic and like suddenly that changes your entire relationship to movies because it's like, oh, all of these characters that I've been relating to are actually just people who are showing these traits of autism and you go, oh my God, <laughs> okay, I have to reframe everything. And so I went back to rewatch Unicorn Store and I was like, oh my God, that's why I relate to this film so much because I think when you're autistic. Like I do sometimes come across as I've, I've got childish interest or I seem like a little bit weird or a little bit head up in the air. And I've had to, to spend my life kind of going, okay, that doesn't mean that I'm not smart. Like I still have ideas. And as Kit says, I know things. And I don't know, it's such a strange thing. It's just, this like really like, offhand line in the movie I looked it up on IMDb it's not even in the quote section so the people who made the movie don't think it's a significant quote <laughs> but for me it's like oh that's that's my life it's I'm always having to tiptoe around dudes who think that they know things but it's I know things so that I yeah it's hard to explain but I love it um, well, I don't know this movie I watched the trailer in preparation I didn't get a chance to watch the movie beforehand I got quite tearful is it quite a it, it, 
I don't want to without having seen it, but the trailer has some sort of has certain Garden State vibes about it. Obviously, you know, with uh, Brie Larson in the lead role, where someone fails at this thing and then they have to return home and you know dealing with sort of being a failure. Has it got Garden State vibes? Yeah, definitely, because she's living with her parents and she does not know what the next step to take in her life is. It's definitely that movie, but I think it's also more than that movie because you understand the reason that she's failed isn't because of anything that she's done. Mm. It's because of how other people treat her. Because the failure that is that she failed art school because she painted something that was pink and sparkly and the guy who runs the art school was like, this sucks, get out. So, <laughs> so that's why it's... I sort of fight against people putting it in the box of, oh, it's the it's the indie movie about mm. the the arrested development, you know, mid-20s adult who's just lazing around and then needs to find some magical inspiration for them to grow up. Right. It's sort of that movie, but it's also very much not that movie. Uh, I'm excited to see it. I'm gonna. I, I, if you hadn't introduced it to me, it would have passed me by completely. So thank you for that. I'm going to give Unicorn Store a watch and um it passed everybody by that's why brie larson hasn't directed a second film <laughs> okay there you go that I, I was like was this a, a thing brie larson this is like this is cat post captain marvel so i guess you know um we got one more thing to do clarice uh before we get to the movie you've picked for us and that is to play through the dolby atmos speakers what you consider the best use of music in a movie i feel like this is almost cheating because this is just the best movie ever made. <laughs> but it's the scene in Casablanca where they all start singing La Marseillaise. And to me, it's because not only the context of the scene, which is obviously all these refugees in World War II in this bar that is in control of the Vichy government, so the Nazis, and the Nazi officers are all there singing their German song. And then the French refugees strike up with the national anthem, and it's so passionate, and they're all crying. But also it's knowing that a lot of the actual actors in that scene were actual refugees, and that moment was 100% real for them. It was filmed at the height of World War II, uh, and a lot of actors, a lot of Jewish actors fled and came to Hollywood, and uh, quite a few of them ended up in this production. And they're there sort of experiencing their own pain on camera. And I just, oh, I just like, I, I don't think there's anything more powerful in cinema. It's just an incredible scene. It is an incredible scene. Um I watched it in preparation for this, and I was like, I didn't know that story that they were really um, they were refugees themselves. But some of those tears, as the song is playing on the actors' faces, they looked genuine uh, when I was watching it. Yeah, I think because there's the the young woman mm. that the camera cuts to, and you see that she's really crying. Uh, Yvonne, mm. the actress, is Madeleine Lebeau, and her husband was a Jewish refugee who had escaped. And they had come to Hollywood together. And he's also in the movie. He's the the croupier. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, that's, she's really crying because that's her life. Uh, 
it's yeah it's it's, it's just incredible wonderful we hear it echoing round the auditorium la marciers from casablanca and here we are clarice it's time for you to announce to this packed auditorium and Mary Shelley herself experiencing cinema for the very first time, the film that you have picked out of all others to screen for us tonight. What are we watching? I feel like when I picked this, I didn't really consider the fact that Mary Shelley was there. And I don't know if this is the first film she should ever experience. <laughs> it might give her the wrong idea of what cinema is. But I struggled a lot with this because I think with film critics, we have a certain pressure on ourselves to be educators. And I was like, oh, maybe should I, should I do like a David Lynch or like a Jean Cocteau? Like some, because I love really surreal stuff. So I was like, oh, maybe I should do that. But I think what would be really true to my nature is that I love people being happy and having fun and experiencing joy. <laughs> and not a single person I've ever recommended this movie to has not come back to me being like, thank you. I had the most ridiculous fun time with this. And it's a movie from 1977 called House. And it's a Japanese horror movie by a director called Nobuhiko Obayashi. And Oh my God. Okay. Let me, I'm going to describe it. So there are seven teenage girls who go to visit one of the girls' aunt in her beautiful country home. And the aunt is also sort of maybe a, like a demon who can transform into a cat with laser eyes. And over the course of like a night and a day and maybe another night, the house one by one eats the girls and one of them gets eaten by a piano and the limbs are like flying around and there's music and a dancing skeleton and there's a painting of a cat that like vomits blood everywhere and it's the most difficult film ever to describe because the plot is hey these teenage girls turn up and then just like the craziest stuff happens don't worry about it have fun. <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, sold on cat with laser eyes, uh, double sold on cat painting that vomits blood. Um, so this this was not expected to be a hit, but it, it was a hit when it was released in Japan, wasn't it? The funniest part of its backstory is that um, the studio, which is Toho Studios, who were the people behind Godzilla for context, they saw the success of Jaws over in America and Japanese film at that time was sort of sh struggling because they weren't producing their own hits. And so a lot of the cinemas were just filled with American movies and Toho Studios went, okay, God, like we need our own Jaws, which the part of the story I don't understand is they had their own Jaws. It was Godzilla, <laughs> but yeah. they, <laughs> that's, they had, there's not that much English writing about this movie. So I haven't been able to find that answer. But they went to Obayashi, who was an experimental filmmaker who had gone into commercials. So they thought, oh, okay, so he must know how to make people happy. And they said, Obayashi, please, can you make us Jaws? And he said, great. <laughs> he went to his 11-year-old daughter <laughs> and he went, "Did you? what would you make a movie about? <laughs> and she said, a house that eats girls. And he went, great. 
and he made, <laughs> and then he made this movie, and it's not in any shape or form like Jaws at all. It's not a monster. I guess you could say the cat is kind of the shark, but the cat is the cat's vomiting blood. It's a painting, <laughs> and it's it's there's a bit where it's dancing on the piano. And the soundtrack is the is made up of the meow, so it's like meow, 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 meow. That didn't happen in Jaws. <laughs> there was no shark musical segment. So I think the story behind it just makes what the film is so much more like fun and weird and joyous because. I, I, that's how I sometimes feel when people tell me to do things. And I'm like, can you do this? And I come back and I go, there's a cat with laser eyes. Do you like this? <laughs> this is good, right? Oh, wonderful. So Nobuhiko Obayashi's 1977 movie House is what you have screened for us tonight. And Clarice, that's it. The curtains have closed. The guests are milling out, smiling, chatting, and thanking you for taking them on an incredible night out of the movies. But before you go, it's time for this week's mystery question as we ask, what's in the box? I saw you with the box. What was in the box? Oh, what's in the box? So, okay. This is your mystery question. As someone with their finger on the pulse of the movie world at this early stage, September 2023, what film do you think is going to be the big winner at this year's Oscars? What movie are we going to be talking about on the Monday morning? It's a favoured question for our film journalist guests. It puts you on the spot. Tell me your thoughts. I feel semi-confident that it will be an Oppenheimer sweep Ooh. because I... Uh, the Oscars love a sorry we didn't give you any Oscars before kind of Oscar. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Christopher Nolan has had such a gigantic impact on the cinema landscape. And he's made so many films that people go, oh, why didn't he win the Oscar for that? Mm -hmm. I feel like this is the opportunity because he's never going to make, well, maybe he will. If he's probably never going to make another Oppenheimer. And it's a very serious war movie. The Oscars love that. <laughs> it's got this very central performance by Killian Murphy and very haunted and playing a really difficult guy. And he's he's able to capture all these layers and all these contradictions within this one person. The Oscars are love, they love that. I feel like Barbie, too happy for the Oscars. I would hope it gets some nominations, but I don't feel overly confident that it's going to win much. And then I would say the other competition is Poor Things. But I don't know if they'll be like, yeah, we already gave Guillermo del Toro the Oscar for the weird fish movie. We're not doing a weird thing again. <laughs> <laughs> you have to wait another five years and then another weird movie can win. So I maybe, but I do feel like the Oscars like Yorgos Santamos, so they might, they might go for Poor Things. But if I had to say right now, mm. Oppenheimer. Yeah, I, I, I'm tending to agree with you on that. I think also it's helped by the fact that the Oscars is, you know, it's looking to reward more mainstream movies to bring the audience, the viewers back. And I think if Oppenheimer hadn't done the numbers it had done, I think Barbie would be in with a better shout. But because Oppenheimer is such a huge movie that everyone's seen, thanks to Barbenheimer, 
partly. Um, I think it stands a very good chance. So, yes. Agreed. Right, Clarice, your taxi has arrived to ferry you back to reality. I'm going to do you a favour and I'm going to tell the driver to stop off so you can have dinner with Mary Shelley and discuss 1977's house before it takes you back to reality. I don't do that for everyone, but you specifically said you wanted to chat with Mary Shelley after the movie. So before you go, it's time to recap your perfect night out at the cinema. You are going with author of Frankenstein, Mary Shelley. You are going at 3.30 in the afternoon to allow time for dinner with Mary afterwards and maybe even some drinks. After that, you're going to be sitting in the front row at the centre so potentially you can do a Samara from the ring and crawl into the cinema screen. You are taking in with you absolutely no food, just a pot of freshly brewed coffee with some oat milk. We're putting up a poster for your fondest movie memory, which is Mad Max Fury Road, crying because you didn't think you deserved something that good. The second poster we're putting up depicts your worst movie memory, which is the first time you realised cinema could disappoint you. Age 11, seeing a sad stormtrooper watching Attack of the Clones. The third poster depicts the last performance that brought you to tears, which is the end scenes in Barbie with Margot Robbie and the home video footage of the crew. Mm. The final poster we're putting up depicts your unpopular movie opinion. Alien Covenant is better than Aliens. I'm just going to let that breathe for a moment. All right, we're into the auditorium and we are playing the trailer for Yorgos Lanthimos's Poor Things. We are then going to play the movie moment that makes you literally or metaphorically pump your fist in the air. I am no man by Erwin in Return of the King. The most shocking moment in cinema, the twist in Old Boy, the piece of dialogue or line from a movie that most affected you. I think these dudes that I just tiptoe around because I think that they know so many things. They don't. I know things. I haven't done it justice. You did it justice earlier. And the best use of music in a movie, the Marseillaise from Casablanca before we watch Nobuhiko Obayashi's house from 1977. Wow, what a trip. Clarice, thank you for taking us on that afternoon at the movies. Have you had a good time? I've had a great time. I don't know about Mary, uh, but that's why we're having dinner afterwards because I... I would have to know for the good of history. Because I don't know if in this circumstance have I plucked her out of her timeline. Oh yeah. And then I have to put her back in. And she's experienced house and I've changed the the future of literary stuff forever. <laughs> I've <laughs> oh wow! I mean, yeah. Well, let's let, the the existence, the reality that we are now living in, could be based on Mary Shelley having seen. 1977's house and everything around us is because you showed her that movie and replaced her like a time stone in 18 whenever I really hope I don't don't do that (laughs) (laughs) I I, I don't want to leave you I don't want to leave you with that bombshell so I will say thank you so much Clarice it's been a pleasure having you on thank you so much I've had a great time 
And as Clarice's cab carries her away from our virtual cinema off into the distance, stopping off for dinner with Mary Shelley, we must all leave her movie paradise and return to reality. But to soften the blow, how would you like a pair of tickets for a night out at a very real Odeon cinema? Each week we give a pair to someone who leaves us a review onto the show on Apple Podcasts. It's that simple. So jump on there, give us a review, and if I read it out... We'll send you some tickets. And congratulations to this week's winner, Danny Golferboy, who left us this review on Apple Podcasts. Always a great listen, a barrel of laughs, and always expanding my list of movies to watch on a weekly basis. Keep up the good work, Danny Golferboy. Thank you very much. Email us at triptomovies at gmail.com. That's triptomovies at gmail.com, and we will send you your Odeon tickets. The competition is only open to UK residents and the tickets exclude Odeon Leicester Square and Odeon Lux. And just before I say my final farewell for this episode, don't forget, you can find the full video for today's Clarice interview and indeed for every guest on our Trip to the Movies YouTube channel. So if you want to head over there and if you're there and you're watching and you like it, do please hit subscribe and help us grow the pod. And that really is it. I'll be back next week when another guest fills our cinema with their celluloid dreams as they take us on a trip to the movies. Bye-bye.